Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. Well, I want you to suppose for a moment that every human being is an artist. And for the sake of argument, let's be specific, a visual artist painting. And let's go back in time, painting on a cave wall, as our human ancestors did 40, 50,000 years ago. It's a blank canvas, as it were, for both the human beings and the cave walls. There's no past to live up to. There's no art classes, no coffee table books full of work we can't remotely create. It's all a blank canvas. So, what do our artists paint on those cave walls? Do we mirror our surroundings, the flora and fauna, in an attempt to get the look as real as possible? The cameras and smartphones haven't been invented after all, so if we don't paint it, it won't be preserved. Or do we depict the dead, the remembered faces of those we care about now gone, to somehow preserve their memory against the ravages of time? Or do we paint figures that reflect our inner moods, our emotions? Might we try to somehow paint the unsayable, the stories that we tell around the fire of things that can't be seen with human eyes? Is there a place like that? Or do we tire of thinking and merely reproduce the pre-existing cliches, the doxa, the orthodoxy of our tribe, passing on to posterity the gossip that is around us? One thing I think is fairly certain, the artists in such a situation will not be attempting to express their individuality. That won't make sense or even occur to anyone until overabundance begins to atomize people. The concept of the atomized individual is a concept born of plenty and of safety, and that's not what our human forebears were facing. No, I think the pictures on the cave walls are going to be about us, our group, the human beings we depend upon and care about and the things that take care of us in the world. My hunch is that the artists would attempt to express some of the most important things out there, the important things that maybe they will even call sacred. And of course, that's really not a guess. That is exactly what we see on the cave walls. The surviving paintings depict the web of existence surrounding the artists and the tribe, the animals and plants that keep people alive, and paintings of the hunt and of dances. So far as I know, there aren't any cave paintings of people painting in caves. Think about that for a moment. <laughs> Again, that self-reflexivity piece is the art that comes from times of plenty. People living on the edge, as our ancestors 
did stay grateful and see the sacred not as disembodied somethings or other out in space somewhere, but rather the right here and the right now, today, among these people who I care about and who care about me. What I want to consider today is just that, awakening to that wise artist within each of us who sees what is important, what many theologians call our ultimate concerns. The artist within each of us struggling to convince us to have the courage to grow up a little bit every day and to be wise enough to see the sacred and the awesome right here now. Now, I highly recommend what I see as a very good practice for contemplative time. Write down, or at least imagine, your spiritual autobiography, the story of your religious and philosophical life. Were you born into a particular tradition? How did that tradition suit you as you grew and changed? Did you leave your birth tradition? Why did you do that if you did? How many different religious and philosophical traditions have you tried on for size over the years? How many books and seminars and YouTube videos have you consumed looking for the right alternative for something that felt true or real or sacred? The spiritual autobiography has become part and parcel of Western thinking. The first one goes all the way back to St. Augustine of Hippo's Confessions back in around the year 400. Augustine set the pattern for both the autobiography and the spiritual journal. A life of sin and doubt, he reported to us, a dawning conviction to do the right thing, and some backsliding, and then salvation. In both spiritual and secular form, this has become the model of the hero's journey for us. First, we see the hero in that old way of doing things, then there's a crisis, probably a series of crises to overcome, and then a new way of life and order and happiness is restored. In the English language, one of the most famous accounts is by the author of Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan. In 1666, that's a while back, Bunyan published his spiritual autobiography titled Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. As the style of the time had it, the title page tells the whole story. <laughs> or a brief and faithful relation of the exceeding mercy of God in Christ to his poor servant John Bunyan, wherein is particularly shewed the manner of his conversion, his fight and trouble for sin, his dreadful temptations, also how he despaired for God's mercy, and how the Lord at length through Christ did deliver him from all the guilt and terror that lay upon him. Yes, that's the classic. Now, the narrative of Pilgrim's Progress, the novel, relates this same kind of plot. A contemporary video retelling shows how the hero's journey motif is still being used to entice some of the younger folk along. And it's a story about poor Christian. The hero of the story has this terrible burden on his back, and he is so weary of carrying it. And in case you haven't read the book, uh, the burden is 
Wait for it. Sin. Oh, the trials and tribulations that await poor Christian, including famously a photo shoot at Vanity Fair. Some of our Christian friends might object, but I would argue that the illustrations for Pilgrim's Progress over several centuries now have contributed to the invention of the fantasy genre. All you gotta do is look at all of those terrible monsters and the really, really cool bad guys that they're able to draw. Now, spoiler alert, again, if you haven't read it, Christian eventually runs toward the light and his burden of sin falls away. Hallelujah, end of story, and happily ever after. Scary, huh? Good bedtime stories for Christian children. <laughs> there's, there's the cross he's running toward, as you see, the light, yes, indeed. There's only one problem with this plot. Life doesn't work that way. One major crisis, a few skirmishes and close calls, one big solution, fade to black, happily ever after. No, as Unitarian poet E.E. E. Cummings phrased it, it takes courage to grow up and become who you really are. Cummings recognized the struggle, the nearly constant struggle of growing up long after growing up is conventionally supposed to be over and done with. I mean, after all, when are we grown up? Is it 25 or 35 or 55 or 95? No, if you take a look around you here today, you'll see some of our folks uh, who are in their 90s uh, living quite well, and I think they are still searching. That's what keeps us alive and growing up. It's not that growing up is underrated, it's that growing up is really not like that hero's journey. In reality, we have to get up every darn day. Life is about forward motion, it's about change. We learn to live with this reality or we fight the change and try to freeze time, but that does not go well. Some people have gotten this fact over time. It's why Christians invented the idea of backsliding. You can get that burden back on Pilgrim's Progress. Yep, uh, here you are heaven bound today, but tomorrow you are in the slew of despond. That kind of plot, however, doesn't really sell movie tickets after a point. We want a happy ending, but we do, most of us live in a place where we just keep on going. And that way, the real way we live has led some to claim that we ourselves, the life we live is best considered as a work of art, a masterpiece that we keep working on all our lives. We are all artists of ourselves. Now think for a moment about Marlena Dietrich, the iconic film star. Now she was born in Germany in 1901 and she was named Marie Magdalene. She, in fact, invented the name Marlena, and because of her fame, the name subsequently became popular, but she is the first one who was Marlena. She was so obsessed with image that she stipulated that she would okay every photograph of herself that was released. 
but there were some, including that one, that she did not okay. What Dietrich did not want for people to know is that her very suave, bisexual persona was actually based on her younger self when she was a brunette cabaret performer in Weimar, Germany. Marlena Dietrich created herself as a work of art. Now explicitly modeling himself on Marlena Dietrich's self-creation, the British rock star David Bowie created several musical personas, including the thin white duke and Ziggy Stardust. And Bowie was highly aware of the personas that he was creating were works of art. And Madonna and Beyonce, because even though all of these folks are in the public eye as visual entities, we all know, as Marlena Dietrich knew, that self-creation is mostly about interior work, work on our persons that leads to a change in our persona, our outward mask, and vice versa. I've quoted philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre before saying, Napoleon wasn't Napoleon either. He was merely the first person to think he was Napoleon. <laughs> and the same is true of Marlena Dietrich. Marlena Dietrich wasn't Marlena Dietrich either. She was merely the first person to think that she was Marlena Dietrich. It takes courage to grow up and become who you really are. E.E. E. Cummings was right about that. The courage to grow, it implies an investigation of being itself. It starts in our own minds, it starts there, but investigation, contemplation, leads quickly to the realization that the individual self is an illusion. The self we feel and the self we project as persona is intersubjective and relational. Our feeling of psychic isolation is an illusion. We are all beings intertwined with other beings, seeing, thinking, noticing. The painters in the caves understood this instinctively. We today have a more difficult time realizing our connections as we sit inside our atomized lives. The deep investigation of the self then leads to the realization and the challenge that I must be me I at least need to be otherwise than I am as well. I want to be better today than I was yesterday. And this is where the questions of ethics and morality hit us. I must strive to be more fully realized as me than I was born to be. And I was born into circumstances I didn't even choose. We call that fate, don't we? As an old punk rock song phrased it, it's a gamble when you get a face. And yes, that's by Richard Hell and the Voidoids, speaking of self-creations. Our birth circumstances are not our choice to make. Our body type, race, gender, health, rich, poor, these are the raw materials that we work from, but we're born as we are. The German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche told us this news concerning self-creation a long time ago. He said, one must give value to their existence by behaving as if one's very existence were a work of art. The value of your existence is the fact that you create yourself as a work of art. 
Kevin Kashi is a professor of English at Brown University and the author of a book called Black Aliveness on a Poetics of Being. A Poetics of Being, now that term poetics, I know it, I'm a poet. It's how you put poems together. It's the art form of how you do poetry. This line of thought is a very old one. Alan Locke, the founder and philosopher of the Harlem Renaissance, insisted that life well lived is a life constructed as a work of art. And Professor Kashi, contemporary, doesn't use the term life for this, however, but aliveness. And this usage avoids that static noun. Oh, it's, it's life. Yeah, yeah, static. He wants to underline the dynamic nature of what it is to be the artist of yourself. Life is aliveness. Aliveness is a process that we practice every moment of every day. By so doing, our lives become a work of art created by how we live each moment. Now, now I, I'm not saying that all the art any of us are going to produce every day is good art. I do a lot of extremely bad art during my various days as a living being person, but it's what we strive to do better today than yesterday. Thinking in this direction contributes to a life well lived. That's what we humanists are after. We are all artists creating our lives, reminding ourselves that things that end up in books or museums or the cinema are not the only sorts of art. Love in its many forms is an art. Friendship is an art. Conversation is an art. Cooking is an art. Helping a friend is an art. No, that sort of thing doesn't sell movie or museum tickets, but it's an art form that all of us can practice. Beautiful thoughts make a beautiful life. Beautiful actions make a beautiful life. It adds up. You don't have to be born Melina Dietrich, also known as Marie Magdalene, or David Bowie, a.k.a. David Robert Jones, or Beyonce, a.k.a. Beyonce Giselle Knowles Carter, to be born into the challenge of being an artist of yourself. Each of us is born into that challenge. It's what we do with the challenge of being that defines us from moment to moment, day to day. As a humanist, I think that religion is in the same category of human activity as painting and poetry and music and dance and fabric and architecture and all the other human arts. Dance is something we do. Religion is something we do. Creating and recreating ourselves each day is something we do. Because we respect ourselves and the web of existence around us enough to do the work of art every day. In that way, we go back to the cave when humanity was young, and we paint with all the awe and wonder at the simple, sacred amazingness of life. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism, and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.